0: All right, good morning. Welcome to Theological Equipping class. As you trickle in, come try to sit a little closer to the front, that's actually why we make it scary dark in the, uh, in the back, so you can't read your notes. It forces you to, it's social pressure. We're using it to our advantage. Uh, today we're talking about just war theory, which is not like, oh, what is that? It's just war. In fact, I'm gonna erase this little exclamation point because that looks a little too, uh, too aggressive. Uh, for this topic. But let me pray, and then I'll tell you what we're going to be talking about. And uh, we've got a lot to learn. You've got a lot of notes, and so we're going to have to move quickly. So I can't tell as many jokes and such as I normally do. We just got too much material. But let's pray, and then we will get into this topic. Dear God, we thank You for Your Word. We thank You that Your Word has not just uh, told us how to be saved by trusting Christ, but You've told us everything You require us to know. Whether it's about how government should work, whether it's about what we should think in this case of the use of violence, whether it's about uh, how to raise our families, whether it's about how to uh, love lost people, whatever it is, you have given us not all the information in the world, but all the information that you require us to know in your word. So we pray that we would continue to believe in the sufficiency of Scripture as we address this topic this morning. It's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen. All right, well today let's talk about just war theory. Over the next few weeks, we're gonna be doing a lot of Christians and violence stuff because these are big uh, social and political issues. So we're gonna talk about when can Christians go to war today? Then we're gonna talk about capital punishment and then we're gonna talk about a theology of weapons. The Bible actually addresses it. Now you might say, well Zach, wait a second, the Bible doesn't say anything about guns. It does, it just calls them swords, okay? So we're gonna see what the Bible talks about uh, when it comes to that in a few weeks as well. I wanna mention a few good resources on this before I get started, some of which I've drawn my information from. So there's a great book called Just and Unjust Wars by Michael Walzer, which would be a a contemporary examination of just war theory. There's a great series by a professor named Lawrence Cahoon who teaches at College of the Holy Cross called The Modern Political Tradition from Hobbes to Habermas, an excellent uh, lecture series. Uh, And then also Wayne Grudem has a book, Politics According to the Bible. I don't agree with everything in that book. It's a little too, America, come and take it. But he has some uh, good information especially his chapter on uh, just war theory. And so I'll rely heavily on those things. But we have to move quickly today because we've got a bunch to do and it should be a lot of fun. So let's talk about war, Christianity, violence, etc. Okay, first of all, there are four major ways of thinking about the morality of violence in Western history. So there's four main views when it comes to war within Western history. Let me give you a few of those. The first is holy war. Okay, holy war, that's the waging of war not for political or humanitarian reasons but to support, quote, a cause of God. Holy war would be things, for example, like the Crusades, that was a holy war, the Islamic notion of jihad and the Spanish wars against the natives of South America in an attempt to convert them to Catholicism. This is a view of war that hasn't really been held in modern times outside of Islam and is considered to be illegitimate by most scholars. So the first view of war you have is that we are going to war because God has told us to, that God wants us to go and conquer these people. Most scholars today hold that view to be completely ridiculous and defunct, but it does play an important role throughout Western history. The one exception to that is Islam, which still has a very, uh, very powerful notion of jihad, whether that is in a spiritual sense of submitting the will to Allah, or whether that is a very real physical sense of uh, converting people to Islam by force. The second view of uh, war is what is called realism, okay? Realism. What is realism? It's this idea. Realism is this idea that when it comes to war, a nation's just going to do what they need to do. Yes, they want to try to follow the rules and be moral, but at the end of the day, you're going to do whatever you need to do to win. You're gonna do whatever you need to do to keep your people alive and to defeat the enemy. And so what a realist would say is you cannot apply normal standards of morality in wartime, okay? Who held this view? Niccolo Machiavelli, the famous author of The Prince, who uh, it's a a terribly fun read because he's so evil, but he is a, uh, because he is a realist, that would be the view that he held. Union General, William T. Sherman, when he went through and burned Atlanta, and his troops may have even murdered and raped Southern civilians, when asked about his war crime, simply responded with, war is hell, war is hell. And by that, what he meant was, anything goes. When it comes to war, the rules are not the same. That is the idea of realism. The third view when it comes to violence and warfare in Western history is pacifism. This is probably one that you've heard of, it's pacifism. It's the idea that all violence, even in self-defense or war is immoral, okay? The idea that all violence, even in self-defense or war is immoral. Who held to this view? Well, a few people. First of all, many of the early church fathers were pacifists. They held to this view that you cannot use violence even for self-defense or for war. But here's why, let me explain why. They were not involved in the Roman government. The early church is made up of people that are, a lot of whom are not citizens of the Roman Empire. They're slaves and women and those who are poor. They're kind of made up of the outcast of society in that day. And so they're not really having to deal with the issues of war because they're not a part of the government at all. Okay? Once Constantine is converted to Christianity, now Christians really start having to wrestle with, okay, I know I'm personally to turn the other cheek, but what about if somebody's trying to murder my family? Then do things change? Now, not all early church fathers held that. For example, Tertullian mentions Christians serving in the military with approval, but that is a view that you see in the very early church. The Anabaptists held to it. Anabaptists are not the same as Baptists, okay? Baptists come from English separatism. Anabaptists is this weird movement that's sp- you know, springs out of the Reformation. Many of the Anabaptists are heretical, literally don't hold a correct view of the Trinity. And what they thought is that you could not use violence ever in any way, okay? You could not be a police officer, you could not be in the military, you could not stop someone from trying to punch you in the face, you could not use it at all. And what they also therefore said is you cannot be a part of government at all, right? So you can't say that I'm not gonna be a police officer, but I'm gonna be the mayor and be over the police department because you're still guilty. You can't say, I'm not going to be a soldier, but I'm going to run for office and be elected to be the president and be the commander-in-chief of the military. It doesn't work that way. So what the Anabaptists literally had to do was completely withdraw from society. They had to have their own countercultural society where they didn't really see themselves as citizens of a nation. Modern thinkers who are pacifistic include Leo Tolstoy, Greg Boyd, Shane Claiborne, Stanley Hauerwas, John Howard Yoder, and others. Now, there are three types of pacifism, okay? First, those who hold that you cannot resist an evil person trying to harm you. That's true pacifism. Anytime I meet a pacifist, by the way, I used to be a pacifist when I was in college. I know you don't believe that because now I'm also a shooting instructor in addition to being a pastor, but I used to be because I had this naive view. Well, you know, Jesus says, turn the other cheek, so that must mean don't stop someone from trying to kill your wife, and it was just dumb. And eventually I read about just war theory and I got on my knees and repented and changed my view because I, I don't, uh, don't agree with pacifism. A true pacifist could not use violence even to prevent someone from raping their spouse. A true pacifist. if turn, Jesus says nothing about shooting the person. He even says if they strike you to turn the other cheek, love your enemies, etc. A true pacifist could not even push somebody off of someone who is being assaulted or hurt because they cannot use violence at all you'll find that most people are not consistent, logically, who are pacifistic. They actually think you can use some types of violence sometimes, just not other times, and that's not true pacifism. The second type of pacifism is those who hold that you cannot use violence, but that you can resist using nonviolent political resistance, okay? Nonviolent political resistance. Examples of this would be Gandhi, Martin Luther King Jr., and others, okay? The third view, the third type of pacifism, Those who hold that, this is called just war pacifism, by the way, those who hold that, in theory, you could have a just war, but in today's society, the weapons and ways of waging war are too deadly and therefore unjust. So what this group says is, okay, ideally you could have a just war. Maybe back in the middle ages where people are fighting with lances and spears, that could be a just war. But today with predator drones and tomahawk missiles and all these kind of things, you cannot wage an actual just war. It's gonna be too devastating. The the ways of waging war and the weapons we have now, it's too powerful. As soon as you get into nuclear weapons, things very quickly move away from just war theory, they would say. Now, I'm gonna push to say this very strongly, pacifism, I think, is immoral. I think it is sinful and I think it is evil. The Bible is clear that if you see, if you have the ability to do what's right and you don't do it, it is sin unto you. Pacifism doesn't actually love your neighbor. Allowing your neighbor to get shot, allowing your neighbor to be raped, allowing your kids to be kidnapped, that is not loving your neighbor okay? Pacifism acts like it's being moral. It acts like it's being loving, but it actually is enabling those who are evil, who are trying to harm others. Pacifism is an evil view. It is an immoral view. So sometimes when I tell people that I do shooting instruction or whatever, they think, how could you do that? You're a pastor. And I'm like, yes, but I'm a a Christian. And the entire Christian tradition, except for the weird Anabaptists and a few early church fathers trying to figure it out, have not been pacifists, okay? They have not been pacifists. Jesus commands us to love and it is de facto unloving to allow people around you to be harmed or killed when you can prevent it. Loving your neighbor includes stopping a mass shooter from killing all the people you're commanded to love. So I was talking one time to a buddy of mine who's a pacifist and he's like, Jesus says to love your enemy. How can you shoot your enemy if you love them? And I said, well, what if I'm in a movie theater and I have a hundred neighbors around me and one of them is trying to kill all my hundred neighbors? Am I not to love that hundred? Am I not to love them? Yes, you love your enemy, but not at the expense of loving other people too. And so you have to realize that that is sometimes the most loving thing to do is to stop some type of assailant. Jesus commands us to love our enemies. This means that sometimes, listen to this one, love looks like preventing them from committing horrible crimes so they do not receive more of God's wrath. It is never loving to enable somebody in their sin. It is loving to try to prevent them from committing that sin. The Bible defines what is most loving and yet allows capital punishment, war, and self-defense. Therefore, these things are not at odds with the Bible's commands to love. When we say we're to love love those around us, we have to look at the Bible to see how it actually defines love. And somehow there's no contradiction between loving those around you and also doing capital punishment. There's no contradiction between loving those around you and going to war. There's no contradiction between loving those around you and using violence and self-defense. So the view that I'm going to support, the view that I now hold, which I used to not hold years and years ago, is just war theory, okay? Just war theory. That's what this lesson's primarily going to be about. So you've got holy war. God told me to kill you. You need to stay away from that. That gets weird real quick. You've got realism. I can do whatever I want. It's war, you know? Who cares about war crimes? Stay away from that one. You've got pacifism, allow people who are weak to be destroyed by people who are stronger and don't help the weak people. That's unloving, that's not a Christian view. The historic Christian view when it comes to violence is what is called just war theory. What is just war theory? There are justifiable times to go to war, but the war must meet certain criteria and must be waged in a humanitarian way. This view does not seek to prevent war, but to limit war. Uh, Just war theory is just an expansion of the idea of self-defense. I can't just assault you because I'm mad at you, but I can use violence to protect myself once you've already assaulted me. What this view does is it takes that personal self-defense ethic and it reads it onto an entire nation. That you cannot go to war just to have your own glory like Rome did. You can't go to war just to conquer somebody for their resources or something like that. But you can use war to protect your people from an aggressor. It's basically a defensive view of war. Things to know about just war theory. The Christian version of this argument was primarily started by Saint Augustine in his work, City of God, okay? In City of God, he has to describe the beginnings of just war theory. He draws on thoughts from previous Roman and Greek authors, but this is really where it starts with the Christ- Christian tradition is with Augustine of Hippo. The theory was expanded by Thomas Aquinas, that, uh, the greatest uh, theological thinker in the Middle Ages, bar none, Aquinas said, listen to this, this is really important. Aquinas said just war was an act of love for those whom you are protecting. So when a Christian goes to war, we don't get to go to war because we hate people or we're mad at them. We get to go to war because we love those we're protecting. It's a way to use violence, but it's using violence with the explicit purpose of loving whoever we're protecting, whether it's our nation, whether it's our state, whether it's whatever it might be, okay? The Panormia by Evo of Chartres And the Decretum by Gratian are two famous works systematizing just war theory in the Middle Ages. The Decretum is especially important. There's this guy named Gratian in the Middle Ages, and what he does is he takes all these discordant canons, all these official teachings of the Catholic Church, and he summarizes them into this huge, huge, huge work. And the reason it's really helpful for this, though, is he basically takes all the pronouncements that the church has made about war and is able to harmonize those, and so it becomes a really helpful resource for this topic in the Middle Ages. The reformers held to it, okay, so when we talk about big names that hold to just war theory, Augustine, Aquinas, Anselm, the entire Catholic tradition, and the reformers, all the reformers, Luther holds to it, Calvin holds to it, it is the historic Christian position. If you don't hold just war theory and you're a pacifist, great, you're outside of the norm of Christianity, Protestant or Catholic, okay, Protestant or Catholic. It is the position throughout the majority of Christian history, Listen this next interesting point. Originally, it did not apply to civil war or revolutionary war. We'll see why in a second when we get into the rules of just war theory is that it has to be declared by a competent authority and a rebellious group is typically not seen to be as a competent authority. And then lastly, it was adopted as international policy by many modern nations in the 1800s, including the United States. Just War Theory, though it's a Christian position, is officially the military position of the United States. Okay? We're not just gonna go bomb someone and take their land because we just want to have some sweet expansion up into Canada, although it'd be so easy to take Canada. They come at us with their maple syrup and their hockey sticks. That's not gonna cut it, right? You can't do that, though. It has to be, uh, it has to, be to protect others. Let me give you some great quotes. Augustine says, we do not seek peace in order to be at war, but we go to war that we may have peace. Be peaceful, therefore, and warring, so that you may vanquish those whom you war against and bring them to the prosperity of peace, okay? A German historian, church historian, Ernst Dieter Hell, quoting from a guy named Anselm, not Anselm of Canterbury, Anselm of Lucas, says this, Anselm stresses that bloodthirstiness and similar motives for war are Unacceptable. Listen to this, only love of one's neighbor can justify the use of force. Hence, the aim of war is not to destroy the enemy, but to turn him away from sin and save his soul, at least even if this involves killing him. Sometimes the most loving thing to do is not to allow the mass shooter to continue killing people. That's not the most loving thing for the people, and that's not the most loving thing for that shooter. The most loving thing for both of them is to stop that. Martin Luther says this, and he writes this against the Anabaptists, these weird radical groups that are saying, we don't need any military, and we don't need any weapons, and we're just going to be peaceful, and we're just going to live in church, and people just won't be sinners. Here's what Luther says to that kind of dumb thinking. If anyone attempted to rule the world by the gospel and to abolish all temporal law and the sword on the plea that all are baptized in Christian, and that according to the gospel there should be among them no law or sword or the need for either, pray tell me, friend, what would he be doing? He would be loosing the ropes and chains of the savage wild beast and letting them bite and mangle everyone, meanwhile insisting that they were harmless, tame, and gentle creatures. But I would have the proof in my wounds." Just so would the wicked under the name of Christian abuse evangelical freedom, carry on their rascality, and insist that they were Christians subject neither to law nor sword, as some are already raving and ranting. For those that say, because we're Christians and we won't need swords in the new heavens and new earth, right? We'll beat our swords into plowshares and our spears into pruning hooks, therefore, we don't need them now. That argument is crazy. That is an overrealized eschatology. You know some things that we won't need in eternity that we need now? Doctors, lawyers, the sun, S-U-N, won't have that in eternity according to Revelation, but we certainly need it now, all right? Hospitals, cancer treatments, guns, whatever it is. And so what Luther is saying is they have an overrealized eschatology. We're not just under Christ, we're under Christ and under the state. That's part of what it means to be a Christian, okay? Let me give you preliminary uh, propositions about violence in the Bible. A few things here. Number one, Your view of capital punishment, and Jeff will talk more about capital punishment in another lesson, so I don't want to say too much about it here. I just want to say this. Your view of capital punishment is logically linked to your view of killing in war. Capital punishment is where the state kills domestic criminals. Warfare is when the state kills foreign criminals. You have to hold the same, you you have to hold this view on both. So I've met Christians who say, I'm against capital punishment, but yeah, go military. And I think those are the same thing. Okay? When the state kills domestic criminals, that's called capital punishment. And when the state kills international criminals, that's called war. But your view on those two things has to be logically linked. Second thing, not all violence is bad. (gasps) He said it. He said it out loud in a Christian church. Violence is morally neutral. There is righteous violence and unrighteous violence. Okay? This is something that we don't think about. A lot of times when we talk about, let's get rid of all violence or we'll give stats of gun violence. Or vi- Violence is morally neutral. Is drinking alcohol sin or no? No, it's neutral. It can be used in a sinful way. You can get drunk, or you can use it righteously to enjoy a dinner with your spouse or to take communion. Is, what about sex? Also morally neutral. It can, be, it, it can be used outside of marriage, and then it's sin, or it can be used inside of marriage, and it's good and God-glorifying. The same is true with Violence. We have a tendency to think all violence is bad and that's not true. There's righteous violence and there's unrighteous violence. Okay, murder and killing are not the same thing. Uh, so, So I'll give you an example. The Nazis in World War II were using unrighteous violence. How did we stop them? Was it through conversation? Was it through just trying to really understand and really sympathize with them? No, we used superior violence. But ours was justified because they were on the wrong side of the issue. A, a police officer who has to shoot an, at some sort of assailant, that's righteous violence. The assailant shooting innocent people, that's unrighteous violence. So you have to understand, violence is a morally neutral thing. It can be used righteously or unrighteously. It can be used even against Christians if they're acting in a way where they need to be uh, killed, right? In the Old Testament, the, God's laws about capital punishments—a uh, punishment is for Israelites, Interesting to keep that in mind, that one person of God puts to death another person of God if that person has committed some heinous act. Number three, the Bible allows for righteous killing but not unrighteous killing. You ever had somebody say something like this to you? How can a Christian be pro-life in regards to abortion but support the military or capital punishment? Here's the answer. We're not pro-life, we're pro-innocent life. It's not that we're against all taking of life, we are pro-innocent life. And what do I mean innocent? I mean legally innocent. We're all born in sin. That's not what I'm talking about. We as Christians are pro-innocent life. The just taking of life by the state is very different than the unjust taking of life by an individual. That's how we can be against abortion but for something, for example, like going to war in certain uh, instances. The command in the Old Testament. So for all the people that, uh, that just so love the KJV, this gets really confusing. The command is not thou shall not kill. Maybe you heard that growing up. In the 10 commandments, thou shalt not kill. That is a terrible translation. In Hebrew, it says, thou shalt not murder. It's the Hebrew word, ratsach. It's used 49 times in the Old Testament, but never for killing in war. What the Bible forbids is unrighteous killing, what we would today call murder. It doesn't forbid all killing. Even if you didn't know Hebrew, how do you know that? Because God says, thou shalt not murder. And what does he do? He turns right around and says, now Israelites, go kill all the Canaanites, okay? So it's pretty obvious that it doesn't, mean, uh, it doesn't mean that you can't do any killing, it's that you can't do unrighteous killing. The Bible also allows for self-defense. In addition to the fact that Jesus' disciples had swords, which you don't use for farming, you don't use swords for hunting, swords are only used for humans. They're used to, made to be used on humans. We'll talk more about that when we talk about weapons in a few weeks. Exodus 22:2. If a thief is found breaking in and is struck so that he dies, there shall be no blood guilt for him, meaning for you. If somebody breaks into your house and you strike them and they die, you're not guilty for that according to God's word, okay? Because the Bible allows self-defense, it allows killing in war, and it allows capital punishment. The Bible commands righteous violence, that's humans killing other humans, for egregious crimes, now listen to this, this is important, both before the giving of the Mosaic Law, in the Mosaic Law, and in the New Testament. So this isn't just something that's in the Mosaic Law, It's not something that's just in the Mosaic Law, which Christians are no longer under. It's something given before the Mosaic Law. It's given in the Mosaic Law and it's given in the New Testament. Genesis 9, 6, whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. For God made man in his own own image. If you've ever heard somebody say, we shouldn't take life, only God can do that. Well, that's really funny because here God says, men are the ones that should shed the blood of other men. That's God's command to us. In the Mosaic Law, Exodus twenty one twelve whoever strikes a man so that he dies shall be put to death. In the New Testament, Romans 13, 4. For he, the governing magistrate, is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid. So when somebody says, we shouldn't be afraid of the police, that's not what Romans 13 says. It says, if you're doing what's wrong, you should be afraid. If, but if you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword or the glock or the AR in vain. For he is the servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. If you're someone who is a police officer, you're somebody who's in the military, here's the title the Bible gives to you, servant, servant of God, okay? That's a good title to have. Even if that person is not a Christian, at least in their role, they're being a servant of God, even though they might not actually be a servant of God personally. Number five the Bible has multiple commands in both the Old Testament and the New Testament about how the government is supposed to use lethal force to oppose evil. Now, some of these commands would not be relevant today because it's about the Canaanite genocide, but I'm going to read them anyway just so you see uh, a few examples. Joshua 6, 21. Then they devoted all the city to destruction. Again, a city that's evil. God's using righteous lethal force to, to judge evil. Both men and women, young and old, oxen, sheep, and donkeys with the edge of the sword. First Chronicles 5.18, the Reubenites, the Gadites, and the half-tribe of Manasseh had valiant men who carried shield and sword and drew the bow, expert in war, 44,760 able to go to war. Deuteronomy 7.2, and when the Lord your God gives them over to you and you defeat them, then you must devote them to complete destruction. You are to put them under the ban, to show no mercy. You shall make no covenant with them and show no mercy to them. In the New Testament, 1 Peter two thirteen through 14, be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. That's the role of the government. The role of the government is not to, uh, uh, to take away your Christianity and tell you how to practice your religion as we increasingly see that. The role of the government is to punish evildoers. It's to, it's to allow you to have freedom because people can't mess with you, that's the idea. Romans thirteen one through four, I wanna read it again a little bit longer in context. Let every person be subject to the governing authorities for there is no authority except from God and those that exist have been instituted by God. Keep that in mind with whoever the president is now or whoever the president will be, uh, keep that in mind. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities, resists what God has appointed and those who resist will incur judgment. For rulers are not a terror to good conduct but to bad. Would you have no fear of the one who is in authority? Then do what is good and you will receive his approval. For he is God's servant. There it is, for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid. For he does not bear the sword in vain. For he is the servant of God an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. There, to say it stronger, there should be no safe way to resist authority. Every time you resist authority, you should put your life in danger. There shouldn't be a safe way to do that because you don't get to do that. That's rebelling not just against the authority, but against God, okay? Keep that in mind. What about Jesus' command to turn the other cheek? Okay, let's talk briefly about this because this is the most common thing. If you say you can kill someone who's trying to attack you or you can be a Christian and serve in the Marine Corps, or whatever it is, someone will come up and they'll say, what about Jesus' command to turn the other cheek? And here's my answer to that. Context is like super totally important. Let's see what Jesus is actually talking about. Let's see if Jesus is talking about soldiers. Let's see if Jesus is talking about someone trying to stab you in the eye. Let's see what he's talking about. Let's just look at it here. Matthew 5, 38 through 45. You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. And if anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. Give to the one who begs from you and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. You have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your father who is in heaven for he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. Here's my simple question for you. Is this passage saying that a governmental agent should not stop an evil person from committing a violent crime Or B, is it telling Christians how to act regarding issues of personal offense, retaliation, or being persecuted for your faith? B, that's the context. The context, what Jesus is doing, this is why he mentions you've heard it said. It's why he quotes eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth. That's why he says if you've been struck on the right cheek. Why does he say right cheek? Why give that specific? Because that's a backhand. If you're standing here, wait, and I use strike. The right cheek is where I'll hit if I do this. Put up that scenario in your head. I can't show it up here. It's too, you're facing, it's it's like I'm looking in a mirror. You're facing one direction. The idea is, what Jesus is saying is, when somebody is mean to you, when somebody curses at you, when somebody hurts you, when somebody insults you, slaps you across the face, you don't get to retaliate, okay? Christians don't get to do retaliation. We don't get to do vengeance. If someone comes up, spits on me, curses, and slaps me across the face, I don't get to strike them, okay? That's super different than someone trying to stab my wife I don't take her cheek and say, okay, now Jesus says you gotta turn the other cheek. Go ahead, stab that one, okay? The context is really, really important here. This is not a context about self-defense. It's not a context about the military. Think of this difference. If someone comes and slaps me across the face and curses at me, I'm commanded as a Christian to turn the other cheek. Pretend for a second, though, that I'm a police officer and they do the same thing. Well, now I have to take action because they haven't just slapped me as a Christian in the face. They've slapped the state in the face. They've slapped the badge in the face. And so you as a police officer would have to do some type of action and arrest that person or whatever it might be. So keep in mind, what Jesus is talking about is a lot of times not what people think that he is talking about. Let me do this and then we'll get into part two. We're only halfway done. This is a lot of info. So uh, let's finish this and we'll, take a little, we'll do a little breathing exercise. Luther's Two Kingdoms Theology. Theology. Okay, Luther's Two Kingdoms Theology. There is a great little treatise you can read online. It's about 20 pages. It's called Whether Soldiers Too Can Be Saved. And the German reformer Martin Luther writes it to talk about this issue. And what he does in that article is he sets up his Two Kingdoms Theology. He also talks about this in other places as well. Here's what he means by that. How many ultimate authorities are you under? Ultimate authorities. One, God. But underneath God, he has set up other authorities for you okay? So the government would be one. Your boss at a job would be another. If you are a wife, your husband would be another one. If you're a kid, your parents, etc. So God's the ultimate authority, so everything has to submit to him. But you're rebelling against God when you also don't submit to these other authorities that he's put into your life. And so what Luther is going to say is that the Christian is under two kingdoms. He's under the kingdom of the state, and he's under the kingdom of God. And both of those are true all the time, okay? The primary hat he wears is his churchman's hat, right? But he also wears another hat underneath that which is his statesman's hat and you always have to ask which hat is he wearing at this time okay i'm sorry he's always wearing both what hat is he acting under at this time that's confusing let me say it another way i'm a christian and i'm also an american citizen okay when i baptize do i do that as a christian or in my role as an american citizen christian when i evangelize do i do that in my role as a christian or american citizen Christian. Uh, if I were to join the military and go to war, would I be fighting on behalf of Parkway, the Parkway Church, right, like I've got morale patches that have Parkway gear on it, and I'm like, yeah, let's kill these guys. Or would instead I be fighting on behalf of the state? On the state. So though I am both a Christian and an American, there are some things that I do that are unique to my role in Christianity, and other things that I do that are unique in my role to being a citizen. When I go vote, my Christianity informs my vote, but that act itself is an act of the state. And so you have to keep in mind, because you're both an American citizen and a Christian, there are certain acts that are unique to some of those individual roles, though you personally are always both those things, okay? Though you personally are always both those things. So that's a lot of information, but uh, I would encourage you to read that little, uh, that little tractate he talks about, how you can even be a Christian hangman. You can be a Christian executioner and still sleep well at night. So everybody take a big breath. Oh, that's a lot of information. And that was our whole breathing exercise. Let's move to part two. Just war criteria. So what we just did is we gave kind of an overview of just war theory and violence. And now I want to give uh, what that actual criteria is. So as Christians and theologians and such throughout the centuries have gotten together to talk about what what criteria does a war have to meet for it to be just? So if Christians by and large agree that there are times that Christians can use violence in, for example, going to war or self-defense... What are the criteria for those? What is a just or an unjust war? You understand how important this is? If you're a Christian in North Korea, one of the, like, three of them, okay? If you're a Christian in North Korea, you can't just go fight for the military just because that's your government, because that military might be involved in unjust fighting. It might be involved in something that is evil, okay? So whether or not you're sinning against God when it comes to war simply comes down to this issue. Are you on the right side of this issue? Are you on the correct side of this issue? If you are, God is on your side, and you your fighting is is righteous. But if you are wrong, God is opposing you and you are rebelling against him and killing others in war crimes. For the nation that is wrong, every person they kill is a war crime in God's mind. Every person they kill is a war crime in God's mind. So it's very important to get it right. So let me give you some of these criteria. First, What criteria do you have to have to go to war within the Christian tradition traditionally, okay? This is called use ad bellum, the right to war. What moral requirements must be met before you can go to war? Let me give you a few. First, just cause, okay? Not meaning just cause I want to. That's not what I mean. What I mean is you have to have a reason to go to war that's morally righteous. Is the reason for going to war a morally right cause, okay? Number two, competent authority. Has the war been declared? not simply by a renegade band within a nation, but by a recognized, competent authority within the nation, okay? That doesn't mean that smaller groups in a nation cannot declare war, they can, but it has to be a legitimate group. It can't be just some band of criminals or something like that. It would have to be, you know, the Republic of Texas or something like that. Comparative justice. Is it clear that the actions of the enemy are morally wrong and the motives and actions of your own nation are morally right? That's important. Right intention. Is the purpose of going to war to protect justice and righteousness, or is it to rob, pillage, or destroy another nation? Okay? You can't go to war like a pirate. As much as I like pirates, you can't go to war like a pirate. It has to be for righteous reasons. Last resort. Have all other reasonable means of resolving the conflict been exhausted? Have all other reasonable means of excuse me, Uh, have all of the reasonable means of resolving the conflict been exhausted? Try to do diplomacy first. Try to calm them down first. Try to do anything else. War is awful. You don't want to go to war, okay? But you can if it's a last resort. Probability of success. Is there a reasonable expectation that the war can be won? Is there a reasonable expectation that the war can be won? Proportionality of pro- projected results, what does that mean? Will the good results of a victory be significantly greater than the harm and loss involved, okay? Right spirit, this one is uniquely Christian. Is the war undertaken with great reluctance and sorrow rather than with a delight in war? So I've got a buddy who's a Navy SEAL and we talked about this. It's, it's a strange thing to be in special operations and be a Christian because ideally you go in and you be excellent, You kill the enemy quickly, you use all your training, you use all your tactics, you put them down very quickly and you've done nothing wrong. You've served God in so doing. But then when you go back to your barracks, you get down on your knees and you weep and you ask for Jesus to come quickly. That's the tension of of using violence as a Christian. You know that it's right and you can be good at it. Doing all things to the glory of God includes being good at war, okay? But it also means that you realize the world's not supposed to be this way. The only reason that uh, soldiers have a job is because the world is broken, because the world is broken. Now let's look at what you have to, what requirements you have to meet within the war, okay? So that, the, what we just went over is what you need to go to war, to declare a war. What happens when you're already fighting? What are the moral requirements there? This is called use in bello, the right in war, opposed to right to war, which is what we just looked at. What moral requirements must you keep while you are fighting in war? A few things here. First, proportionality in the use of force will no greater destruction be caused than is needed to win the war, okay? That doesn't mean you cannot overwhelm the enemy. You can. The idea, though, is you can't just nuke the whole country and be like, there, we did it, okay? No greater uh, uh, destruction than is necessary. Discrimination between combatants and non-combatants. Insofar as it is feasible to the successful pursuit of war is adequate care being taken to prevent harm to non-combatants, this is a unique thing in just war theory. Throughout a lot of world history, when nations would go in, they would just kill all the civilians. That's obviously not an option for Christians. We have to distinguish between combatants and non-combatants. You can tell when you're in a war, for example, on terror, how much more difficult that becomes because they're not wearing uniforms and they're not under some type of competent authority, etc. Avoidance of evil means. Will captured or defeated enemies be treated with justice and compassion? What about coercive methods, i.e. torture? Okay, we don't have time to do a theology of torture, although that sounds like it would be torturous. Uh-huh. Uh, but uh, if you want more information, uh, don't email me because it's a really long answer and I'd just rather have coffee with you and talk about it. Okay. Lastly, good faith. Is there a genuine desire for restoration of peace and to eventually live in harmony with the attacking nation? Notice that, that once the enemy has been disarmed, once there is peace, we as Christians are called to forgive. So we can't just hate that people group forever or something like that. We're called to actually try to reconcile with whatever group that is after the fighting is over. Now this last part is very unique to the modern era. So when you look at traditional treatment of just war, they only talk about the right to go to war and right in war. They don't have this last section. This is more of a modern notion, but I think it's helpful. What are you called to do in just war? after the war is over. This is called use post bellum, the right after war. What moral requirements must you keep after the war has ended? A few things. First of all, discrimination. In trials after the war, are you discriminating between leaders, combatants, and non-combatants, as non-combatants usually should not be punished after the war. So after World War II, you can put the Nazis on trial at the Nuremberg trials. What you can't do is sentence someone to death who simply worked in a German factory that made metal that was used for the tanks. Okay, you have to distinguish. The whole nation is involved in that war but there are differing degrees of culpability. For you actually to work for the SS and try to kill Jews is very different from you being somebody who's packing meals for the Germans or something like that, okay? Respect. Are you honoring the people, rights, and traditions of the defeated culture? The goal is not to make that culture your culture. You have to keep a sense of honor for that defeated cultures, uh, some some of their cultural aspects that are not obviously the ones you went to war over. Proportionality and publicity. This is important. Are the penalties and restitution imposed on the defeated nation fair? Has peace been publicly proclaimed? Both of those are important. If your sanctions are too strict on that nation, you know what they'll do? They'll come back in a few generations with a vengeance because you were too heavy-handed. Additionally, you have to proclaim that the war is over. You have to proclaim that we should be working towards peace so everyone knows. Every once in a while, you'll hear that story of some guy who like, was fighting in the Vietnam War and then got lost in the woods, or the jungle, rather. I say woods because I'm from Texas. And then like the war's been over for like 15 years and finally he wanders into some village and he thinks it's still going on. Those stories are crazy, but they happen. It's very important that the whole world is not like that. It's very important that everybody realizes the war is over, okay? Punishment, are you fairly punishing all combatants on both sides who acted immorally for the nature of their crimes? Meaning, if someone's committed a war crime, they should be prosecuted. If someone for your own nation has committed a war crime, they should be prosecuted as well. See, we as Christians, in caring about justice, you can't just care about justice on one side. That's called partiality. You have to care about justice on both sides. Anytime an injustice is done, you have to critique both sides. People don't like that. Our culture only likes critiquing one side of an issue. You have to critique both sides, and the same is true in war. Rehabilitation. Are you seeking to help the conquered people rebuild and re-educate their society? Okay, you can't just devastate them and then their kids are hungry and you have food and you do nothing. You have to help them. It's similar to how after a police officer, if he is required to shoot somebody and that person drops their weapon, what does the officer do? He runs up and administers aid. Think about how loving that is. This guy just tried to kill me, but now that the threat's over, I reholster and I go and I put in, you know, gauze and tourniquets on or whatever I need to do. It's the same kind of way in war. We've destroyed this nation, but now that the war's over, these are fellow humans and they have kids and they have fears and they have insecurity. They have needs. Let's try to help them with those needs. Lastly, follow-up care and education are the mental needs of soldiers, especially PTSD, being addressed, and our military leaders learning lessons from the war. Wars, you, you should always learn a ton of lessons from a war that you can make the war the next time that much better. And by better, what I mean by that is where you don't make stupid mistakes where there's not more loss of life than needs to be, where your techniques and your tactics and your training and then you're, you know helping people decompress, it should always be better from a previous war than, uh, than it has been in the past, okay? That's a lot of information, that's why we have the notes. These notes will be up online. I know it's a bunch uh, of information to go through. Let me go through some other questions about Just War Theory and then we will have, I think, Jared Lawson come up and do some questions. A few things. According to Just War Theory, is it a war crime if you accidentally kill civilians? Now this might surprise you, but the answer is no. The answer is no. If you are going to war and you are, sh- a bad guy's shooting at you and you shoot at that bad guy and the round goes through him and hits an innocent person behind him, you have not committed a war crime. It's tragic, it's sad. There's no way to avoid collateral damage in war, period. There will always be civilians who get killed, there will always be non-combatants who get killed. Even if you're not trying to do that, that doesn't actually break the tenets of just war theory. So if anybody ever says, well, we did this military operations and some people accidentally died, that doesn't break just war theory, okay? However, if civilians are intentionally targeted, that is a war crime, okay? You cannot just be angry. You cannot do, sometimes what was done in Vietnam where a soldier would just kind of go crazy, burn a whole city and shoot some people, okay, that are not combatants just because they're so mad. You can't do that. That would be a war crime. Are guerrillas or rebel groups a legitimate fighting force according to just war theory? Actually, they can be, but they have to meet certain criteria. One, they have to be under responsible command. So you can have some sort of guerrilla group. You can have some sort of uh, you know, national resurgence to fight against the enemy trying to attack you. You can have some sort of militia, if you wanna say it that way, but they have to be under responsible authority. It can't just be a bunch of guys. There has to be a clear hierarchy, a clear structure. They have to be taking commands from somebody. Number two, They have to be controlling some territory, okay? I can't just get a bunch of groups and us start a gang and go wherever I want in the United States just trying to impose my rule, okay? You have to have some type of territory. And then lastly, they have to be carrying weapons openly because that is seen as kind of the international signal for being a military when you don't have uniforms, okay? So if, let's say, some country that's poor gets invaded by some attacking nation and that attacking nation is evil, they have a right, those people, even if they're not you know, uh, in the official military to create their own little guerrilla groups, have authority, openly carry weapons and protect some area and that is seen as legitimate under just war theory, okay? Note, using IEDs is not just according to just war theory. So every time uh, an American is killed by an IED, an improvised explosive device, you see this a lot on the news where a soldier will step on one or one will go off as a Humvee drives over it or whatever. Those are literally war crimes every time they happen. That's why they're done by terrorists, okay? They are war crimes every time they happen. Number three, is preemptive war legitimate within just war theory? What is preemptive war? It's this, a nation is about to attack us and we know it, but we need to take the first strike, okay? Israel did this uh, a while back in the, uh, was it the, don't quote me on this. Israel's done this a bunch. They do a bunch of preemptive uh, kind of strikes. It's this idea. Let's say that America knows that tomorrow North Korea or Russia or whatever, they're going to attack us and they're going to attack us hard. Can we attack them first today according to just war theory? The answer is yes, assuming that you've correctly assessed the situation. So the answer is yes, but you better dang well sure be right, okay? Or else you're the aggressor or else you're the bad guy, okay? So if you know, it's kind of like if someone was running at me with a knife. They haven't gotten to me yet so I can shoot them as they're running because they're going to do it. Okay. So though I have done the first actual strike, their strike was coming. In the same way, if a nation is about to be attacked, they can make the first strike as long as they're right. If you're wrong and that nation was not going to attack you, then all of a sudden you are the one that's the aggressor. All of a sudden you're the one who unrighteously used force, okay? Is preventative war legitimate in just war theory? It is not. What is preventative war? This is I'll give you an example launching a war to prevent someone from becoming president who might later become a threat, okay? So let's say there's some terrible guy out in Iraq or whatever, and we realize that if he gets elected president, we're gonna have to go to war in 20 years, you cannot go to war with Iraq today because this guy might rise up through the ranks and we'd have to go to war in 20 years. You can't do it that way, okay? So there's this. There's something about the urgency of preventative war which makes it different than, I'm sorry, preemptive war that makes it different than preventative war. Number five, are there times when extreme violent measures such as area bombing and using banned weapons are actually allowed in modern just war theory? And the answer to this is yes as well. Let me give you an example. Michael Walzer who's a uh, just-war theorist I mentioned, probably the most famous modern one, says that there are times in a supreme emergency that area bombing, that's where you're bombing a huge area, including where there might be civilians, and using banned weapons may be allowed. Example, when it looked like the Germans were going to win World War II, area bombing was allowed by the British. But once it was clear that the Axis powers were not going to win the war, then it became unjust. Okay, so now we've moved away from the, you know, in in church history, they don't have to talk a lot about area bombing and nukes and stuff. In modern just war theory, you have to deal with this. And what he's saying is, if you're the British in World War II and it looks like the Germans are going to win, you can up the measure that you're using. You can do things that typically wouldn't be okay because it's a supreme emergency. If you don't do them, your nation can be destroyed. But once it's clear that the Nazis are going to lose, then you can't keep doing all these type of bombings that could kill a bunch of civilians or something like that because there's not the need for it. It's not an extreme emergency. Number six, does violence just beget more violence? Sometimes you'll hear Christians say that. Again, that doesn't distinguish between righteous and unrighteous violence, okay? Righteous violence does not beget more unrighteous violence. In fact, it suppresses it. It's, that's, that's how you stop unrighteous violence, Okay. I know we we like to think that we can just reason people out of crazy. It doesn't work that way. I had a conversation with a buddy of mine who's a former police officer, and we were talking about this, and he said, I'm hearing a lot on the news about how we should just be slower, and we should try to counsel the people, and we should really try to engage with them. He said, you try counseling somebody who has a mental illness. You try counseling somebody who's hopped up on meth and is charging at you. It doesn't work that way, okay? People are evil, and violence does not beget more violence. Uh, Righteous violence is what stops unrighteous violence. You sometimes hear this with uh, parents with their kids. Well, I don't want to spank my kid because he hit somebody because my kid hit somebody, so I don't want to hit him. And you don't realize there's, again, unrighteous hitting and there's righteous hitting, okay? A spanking that is disciplined, that is not abusive, is righteous, but what your kid is doing when they push a kid down on the playground because they took their toy is unrighteous, okay? So you shouldn't be teaching your kid never to hit. You should be teaching your kid when they can and can't hit, okay, just like you should be teaching your kids when they can and can't use violence, There's a difference there. We need to have more nuance as Christians. Shouldn't you just pray instead, okay? I've talked to people and I say, this is the view on just war theory, and they say, Zach, if somebody broke into my house, and they do this fake piety, this like overly weird spiritualized thing, if someone broke into my house, you know what I'd do? I'd pray. And I say, great, you know what God would judge you for on judgment day? That you didn't do what he's asked you to do. When your child is sick and has to go to the ER right then, God has not asked you to stop and pray, he's asked you to get your kid to the ER. You can pray on the way. Okay, if somebody's right there trying to kill your family and you don't try to stop them, you are enabling them. Don't write off this weird, fake view of piety. Holiness is doing what God's commanded you to do. And when he's commanded you to protect your family, that's what you should do. And so uh, you'll sometimes see people that make it overly, weirdly spiritual. The Bible is clear that if somebody says, I need food, you don't say, I'll pray for you, be warmed and well-fed. You feed them. If somebody's hurt, you take them to the hospital. If somebody's attacking somebody, you stop them. You don't have to pray, as Jeff said in an email, which is great, you don't have to pray about the things God's already told you to do. Lastly, can just war theory be applied in the case of revolution or civil war? Answer, we're not gonna answer it because Jared Lawson has a whole lesson on it. He already did. Womp womp. So you have to listen to Jared's lesson if you wanna know how this relates to uh, civil war or uh, revolutionary war. So let me uh, pray for us, and then Jared's gonna come up to answer some of y'all's sweet war questions. Almighty God, I confess that the Bible says that one of you uh, in describing you, that you are a man of war, that nobody is more violent than you. You are the one who kills your enemies and you sentence those who don't know Christ to eternal violence and condemnation. So violence itself can't be bad. But at the same time, our hearts are wicked and our hearts are sick with sin and sometimes we want to use violence for unrighteous means. So I pray for both kinds of people in here. There are several people in here that would, that want to get into a fight that want to get into a shooting, that want there to be war. For those in here that are war-hungry, would you change their hearts so that they might be people that want peace, that love their enemy, that turn the other cheek? For those in here that might be more pacifistic and think that all violence is bad or think that it's wrong for Christians to serve in the military or something like that, I pray that you would lovingly rebuke them as well, that you would let them know that sometimes the most loving thing to do is protect those who are weak under your care, which sometimes is an entire nation. So would you be with us? We thank you for your word. We thank you for guiding your church throughout history and thinking through these issues. We long for the day when we will beat our swords into plowshares and our spears into pruning hooks and our hands will learn more, war no more. We ask that that day would come quickly in Christ's name. Amen.